Good morning. We might get stuck into it. Uh, if we haven't met, I'm Samuel. I'm one of the elders here. And it's my privilege to share God's word with you this morning. It's a, a weighty thing, but it's a, a joyful thing. Uh, so it, it turns out that almost everything is... is um, I've got all, everything together this morning. I think the last few times that I've preached, I've either missing my Bible or my notes or, like last week, my health. <laughs> so um, it seems like we have all the pieces together this morning and, God willing, um, it will come together for our benefit and God's glory. Let me pray and then let's have a look at this passage. And, um, yeah. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless us this morning through investigating your word. We pray, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm probably going to forget to talk about the fact that uh, the, the medium says, I see a God coming up out of the earth. I forgot to put it in my notes. So if I forget, can one of the kids please um, come up and remind me? Okay? Bef- when I'm, so if, if I forget to mention the, uh, the God coming up out of the earth. Then with that said, let's have a look at these uh, three chapters of Samuel. This, when we um, look at Samuel, we must ask the question, how do you go about establishing a kingdom? You know, back in the day in the ancient Near East, about 1000 BC, which is when we're talking about here, consolidating a kingdom was a lot more simple than it would be if you wanted to go out and set yourself up as a king today. Usually, the guy who got to be king was the guy who could protect the people. If you could stand up to your nation's enemies, there was a good chance that you could take the top job. Now, sure, there was other considerations at play. You know, did you have divine blessing, Um, but usually, if you could defeat your enemies, people would take that as a sign that the gods were on your side. So what do you do if you are are an existing king, i.e. King Saul, and there's some young upstart who seems to be doing a better job of protecting your country from your enemies than you are? What do you do when there's a guy in your employ and they sing songs about him saying, Saul struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? Well, uh, Saul's initial response is probably a wise one. You know, he, he blesses David, he, he rewards him, he, he brings David in and gives him a good job in his army, he um, marries him into the family, you know, th- thereby you know, doubly ensuring his loyalty He gave him honour and he kept him nearby where he could keep an eye on him. This seems like the wise thing to do. But like many kings before and since, Saul grew more and more suspicious of his best men. What, What probably should have just been a careful awareness turned into paranoia and treacherous plans. And we've seen across the pages of 1 Samuel that Saul has relentlessly pursued an innocent man out of jealousy and spite. 
And even when David had proven on multiple occasions that he had no desire to undermine Saul or to kill him, Saul continued to backflip on his promises to leave David alone, to chase after him and try to kill him. But it was also a tragedy, not just because of this pursuit, it was a tragedy because he was a king who was trying to establish his kingdom by force against the power of the Most High God, the Lord of all creation. And by going against God, he was refusing to listen and obey, and he was tearing his own kingdom apart. He was killing his own kingship. He was given everything he needed to succeed. He was given divine anointing. He was given Holy Spirit. God gave him military victories. He had the support of the people. And he had leading men. He had great warrior leaders like Jonathan on his side. Yet in his own selfishness, he gradually undid every good thing that God had given him. Saul killed his own kingship, despite God's earlier support for him. But on the other side, we have David, Saul's successor, the better man, anointed by God as well. And he was persecuted, hunted and in exile from his own land. And, but even though he was suffering in this way, even though he was on the run and he wasn't yet anointed king, he was still doing kingdom-building activities. He was still seeking to build up the kingdom. He was concerned for people's safety. He was setting himself up against Israel's enemies. He was trying to be loyal to God, even when he was sorely tempted to knock Saul off his perch. So in these three chapters, we have that juxtaposition. It's clearly demonstrated. You've got the king who is undoing his kingship, and you've got a guy who's yet to be king, and he's doing a much better job of acting as king, despite the circumstances. A king who's killing his kingdom, and a not yet king who's building a kingdom. Given the three chapter length of our portion today, we can't really delve into all the nooks and crannies. We wouldn't have enough time. So we're going to have a bit of an overview of each chapter as we go through, looking at them one at a time. The first thing is chapter 27, and it tells us about what I was just talking about, kingdom building, and kingdom building while in exile. King Saul's been relentless in chasing David, and David's just got to the point, we can't put up with it anymore. We have to leave. It's not safe. We've done our best. We've tried again and again. It's time to go. So David packs up. He packs up with 600 men and their families and they all leave the kingdom of Saul. David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Malch, king of Gath. Now, in finding refuge with the Philistines, um, David is making a deal with the devil, so to speak. This is the enemies of Israel. But isn't it sad that 
those who are loyal to God have to leave Israel to find refuge with the enemies of God's people. He, but David moves his uh, men and their families outside Israel to keep them safe. But he couldn't just set up shop in a neighboring kingdom and, and just start living wherever he wanted. He had to go and get on the good side of a chish um, and work out a bit of a deal so that he could have security, a peaceful um, deal that they could live there. And uh, so David gets this little town called Ziklag, and it's a bit out of the way, which is a good thing. So he, they didn't have to live with the Philistines. They could live kind of separately, which is what they were supposed to do as the people of Israel. But also, he was a bit out of the way. He wasn't under King's Achish, King Achish's nose. Uh, he, was, he could kind of do his own thing, which was a good thing. Now, David kind of plays on Achish's assumptions. Oh, David's come. He's fleeing from Israel because of Saul. He's bringing all his families and his fighting men with him. He must have given up on Israel. He must be an enemy of Saul. And David's content to let Achish think that. But that's not really the reality of what's going on. So, David has set up shop in Ziklag. But he's not just content to hang out there and wait for Saul to drop dead. He continues the work for the good of God's people in Israel. He starts raiding Israel's enemies to the south. Now, don't, you can see there the Ziklag in the, in the middle there. And uh, you can see Gath there where Achish is. So Saul's down in Ziklag. That's where he's living. And they start doing raids down to the south of Israel, down the Negev, down here, and even down towards Egypt. So David would go out on expeditions and head down and, and attack the evil tribes around there. Because David was doing what a good Israelite king should do. When God promised to give the land of Canaan to the Israelites, he told them that they had to go and clear out the tribes that live there. Now, now God isn't some... Somebody, uh, God, hell bent on genocide or anything. He 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 isn't mean. He's wiping out these tribes because they were evil and wicked people that God was punishing. Now, I think of a good example is maybe like thinking about uh, the way we use the word Nazi. You know, when we use that word, it it kind of carries all this weight of kind of evil and wickedness and the need for justice. And so we only use that word when we're talking about a particular group of people or, if, or, or we might even use it as a um, way to describe somebody who's particularly bad or evil. So that word carries this idea in it, the weight of it. And, and that's what should be coming to mind when we read through the pages of Scripture and we, we read words like Amalekite because those were words like the word Nazi to Israel. These were a people who were evil, who had attacked them, who were opposed to God, and God was going to bring justice to them. And so, for instance, um, God had, through the prophet Moses, had told them that they needed to wipe out Amalek. He said, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary. And cut off your tail, those who are lagging behind you. 
and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So this is what David was doing. David was finishing the job. He was doing what a good king should do to establish God's kingdom. So David went up and made raids against the Gershurites, the Gerizites, Gerizites, the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. So David was fulfilling God's word in the midst of his exile. Now, understandably, David didn't want to be really forthright with Achish about the situation, about what he was doing. Because David and co. were living in Philistine territory, enjoying that protection, David was... But on the other side, David was helping Israel. So he's, he's a double agent. He's playing both sides. So when David came back with Achish's share of the booty, you know, it's like paying rent, you know, they're, they're living in Achish's land, and so they would come back with a share of the booty for Achish, and Achish would say, well, where'd you get all this? Where have you been raiding? And David would say, oh, just, oh, just down the south of, of Israel. And he would talk about where he'd been in reference to Israel as if he was attacking the people of Israel. It's He's not being like really, it's it's a bit misleading. It'd be like if I said, oh, I've just been to America. When I actually mean I've been to Argentina. Well, if I say to you, I've just been to America, you're going to think, oh, he's been to the United States. But actually, I was in South America. So David's kind of playing on the words. He's, he's, He's being cagey about what he's been up to. But he's trying to keep the peace so he could continue his kingdom-building work in exile. Now, you might ask yourself, what do I, as a Christian, have to gain from this chapter? What, what is up with this? How does this help me as a Christian? I mean, certainly, we're not supposed to gird up our loins and go around um, wiping out tribes of people. Now, what we see here is the continual unfolding of the picture of the Messiah. David is the anointed Messiah who takes God's word seriously, who serves God's people and protects them even when they're rejected. David is a precursor, a shadow, a prequel to a greater Messiah, Jesus Christ. And and in this way, Jesus is like David. He takes God's word seriously. Jesus serves God's people and he protects God's people even when they reject him. Jesus came as the son of David, who even before he was crowned as kings of God's people, he was building God's kingdom. He embodied that kingly character. He started protecting people by defeating their enemies. He started wandering around and casting out Satan's cronies wherever he could find them. He was facing up to their enemies. He went toe-to-toe with Satan in the wilderness, standing on the word of God against the accuser. He went around forgiving sins and healing people and raising people from death, a taste of the coming kingdom. But despite all his active work to build up God's people and rescue them, the Israelites and and the Romans and others 
persecuted him and rejected him. But like David before him, Jesus wasn't going to be stopped. He was going to continue his kingdom building. Even when they did their worst to Jesus in torturing him and crucifying him, Jesus was bringing in a kingdom of hope and life. Jesus actually used their rejection and his death as a mean to establish the new reign of life, risen from the dead. When they thought they were mocking Jesus with a crown of thorns, they were actually coronating him, heralding the kingdom of God that is built on the foundation of Christ and Christ crucified. Jesus' blood was spilled to rescue his subjects. He, as king, put his own life on the line in place of his people. He sacrificed himself to save them from a terrible fate. And he plundered the enemy. He went and freed the captives and brought them into the freedom of God's kingdom. So if if King Jesus sticks out his neck to save his people, I suppose the next question is, how do I join his kingdom? How do I become one of his people? How do I get those benefits? Well, it's not by getting a new passport or a visa. We don't have to bring him gifts to try and earn his favour. Or we don't have to work for him so that he is obliged to give us anything. No, the way that we come into Christ's kingdom is to claim refugee status is to come to him and say, I'm fleeing the other kingdoms of this world and I want to find rest with you. Jesus will give rest, security to anyone who comes to him sincerely and says, I want to ditch the ruler of this age and become a loyal subject of Jesus. And loyalty comes with great benefits, given at no cost to us. But there are strings attached. You can't be half in and half out. You've got to be all in. You can't be a subject of Jesus and still hang around with God's enemies. Loyalty to Jesus means joining him in a holy war against any illegitimate power. It starts with the holy war against sin in our own hearts, but then it it flows out to see holiness being upheld in the church and and going in as a secret agent, so to speak, into the world where we take the light of Christ. And one day, we'll see the the ruin of this kingdom, the kingdom of this age. Right now, we're living in Philistia, so to speak, in foreign land. We're in exile. But God is spreading his kingdom, and one day, this place too will be fully under the control of Christ. Let's follow our king and make raids in enemy territory as we seek to pluck people out of Satan's hands and and draw them to the living Christ. Moving along a bit quicker, we see in the next chapter, we see a kingdom's death knell. In this overview of chapter 28, we see the sad tale of Saul spiral out of control. It's It's a startling juxtaposition. We've seen David seeking to build up a kingdom and we see Saul descending into despair and fear and even going to the grave. The Philistines were going to war with Saul. They head up north. They're setting up for battle in this interesting place that pops up all over Scripture, the Valley of Jezreel. Um, 
the, or maybe as you might be more familiar with it, it's the area where is Megiddo, where we get the word Armageddon. There's this valley where they go to war. And so the, the, the army of the Philistines is going up there and they're getting set up about to attack. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. So he does, he does a good thing. He goes and turns to God to seek an answer. Even though he hasn't got a good track record of listening to God's answers, but he still he goes to find an answer from God. But God isn't speaking to him. Nothing. Saul is that far off the deep end now that God is not even trying to talk any sense to him. You know, it's, it's, it's another moment of sad irony for Saul. You know, there's the, the proverb in Israel, oh, is Saul among the prophets? Well, no. Apparently not. God is not speaking to him. And Saul's desperate. He's scared. So much so that he, he actually goes to seek out an enemy of God to try and get news about what he should do. He actually directly contravenes God's law in seeking out a a necromancer or a medium. God had said, a man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Well, had done a good thing in actually driving these people out of the land, either killing them or, 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 or expelling them or driving them underground, wiping... Uh, purifying the land by getting rid of these enemies of God. But instead, he directly contravenes this law. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. If God's not going to speak to him, Saul thinks he can do the next best thing. Look up the prophet Samuel, but as we know, Samuel is dead, 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 buried dead. There is no question. He is gone. But but Saul just thinks that he can get around it. He knows better. I'm going to try and cheat the system. I know a shortcut. And so Saul was seeking a medium, even though he was the one who actually drove them out of the land. Now he's the one trying to find them and look them up. Saul is, in effect, looking for the way of life in the grave. He is so hell-bent on trying to get to this medium that he actually has to go around the encamped Israelite, uh, uh, sorry, Philistine army. You see here, where that's where the Philistine army has encamped in the Valley of Jezreel. And Endor is up there. Saul, that's why Saul has to get up in a disguise and go in the middle of the night because he doesn't want to be caught by the Philistines, or probably seen by other Israelites, trying to get to this medium. He has to sneak around an, another, an opposing army so that he can obey, disobey God. Then the woman herself is not particularly willing to help out because she knows that it's illegal stuff. She's probably gone underground with her work or stopped practicing because it's dangerous to, be, to do that in Israel. It's a pretty big sign post to Saul that he shouldn't be doing this, but he pushes on. He says, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. He invokes God's name to protect somebody 
and asking them to disobey God. That's using God's name in vain. So the medium acquiesces and agrees to bring up the spirit of Samuel, the prophet. Now, it's important to note here, this probably sounds very weird to us, um, that she's, that it just raises questions for us. Somebody can raise up spirits from the dead? What's going on here? Some people will just go, oh, it's, it's all a fake. She's putting it on. Because the text doesn't actually say that, that Saul or any other people there could see Samuel. It just says that the medium could see Samuel. So oh, she's, she's putting it on. She's faking a voice uh, to tell them this message from Samuel. Now, that sounds reasonable, but that's not how the text is written. That's not how the story is told. The person who, who authored this book doesn't say, oh, but it was all a fake or it was a dece- deceitful spirit. No, it says that Saul went and spoke to Samuel. And so we have to read it as such, understanding that somehow or other, this appears to be Saul talking to the dead Samuel. So it seems that for whatever reason, God uses and allows this necromancy to take place on this occasion for the sake of driving home Saul's failure and his downfall. And so Saul, uh, the, the, the medium, brings up a god. Now, this sounds weird when we read it. If you, I think the translation on the screen had spirit written there. Um, and, uh, and some of your translations will say that she brought up a god. Well, I see a god coming up. And that's because it's using the word Elohim, which is a word used to describe spiritual beings. Now, it's used in the Bible in a bit more of a comprehensive way than we tend to use it. When we use the word God, we usually are explicitly thinking of the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Or if we're referring to false gods, we'll say so, false gods or, um, or, or gods. But the Bible uses the term a little bit more loosely, a little bit more broadly to describe a kind of a class of spiritual being. And so here we have the author of Scripture using the word God to describe the spirit of Samuel coming up. So it's just a little tidbit to put away there and to remember because it will come up in other places in Scripture where the word God is being used in a way that just doesn't seem to compute with how we might use the word So Saul comes up and he speaks and he said, why, Uh, you know, David explains the situation and Saul says, why, why have you brought me up? Why do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? If God's not talking to you, why do you think that I should help you? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce anger, uh, sorry, fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be in the grave with me, shall be with me. And the Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. So King Saul's kingdom is falling apart. It's coming to an end. He sought answers in the grave and he will soon be there himself. And this whole episode with the medium is a resounding death knell, a ringing bell saying Saul is coming to an end. 
it's all about to fall apart. And unsurprisingly, Saul finds no peace in the grave, only more fear and terror. And this is the dread that falls upon any of us when we wander away from the living God. There is no peace outside God's kingdom. There is no life outside God's kingdom. There is only despair and death. And that's what Saul had to look forward to, as one who had tasted the goodness of God, had had received his blessings, and yet he rebelled, and he was destined for destruction. Now, in this case, it was an earthly destruction, a loss of life and honor, but we see in the history of Israel, it's a parable for our own lives with regard to God. We see mimicked, it's a reminder to us that, that the soul that sins will die, that sinners deserve death, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or as Jesus said, we should fear those, not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, you might be thinking, oh, Samuel, you're banging on about this wrath and judgment stuff a fair bit. And you'd be right. You know why? Because God bangs on about wrath and judgment a fair bit. It's important for us to, to dwell on this and to be reminded of this, to feel its weight. It's all throughout Scripture. And I don't want to hide God from you. I want you to see the reality of the God that you worship. I want you to get the whole picture. We ignore God's wrath and judgment to our own peril. We need to know the God whom we worship, not just skip over to the parts of Scripture that are a bit more comfortable and palatable to us. It should grow tension in our chests. It should drive us to ask, who can escape God's terrible wrath? What must I do to be saved? God's wrath drives us to seek an escape, a way out of death. Left around devices, we only go the way of Saul. God's wrath makes us thirsty, thirsty for salvation. And Christ comes as the living water who will fulfill, who will fill us up, who will, who will quench our thirst. He will give us a way out. He will revive us. He says, I say to you, whoever hears my voice, my word, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come to judgment, but has passed from death to life. We come to Jesus to pass from death to life, to come out of the grave and go to eternal life. We come to him to find salvation. We hear his word and we obey Whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. So put your faith and trust in him. He's purchased your soul, redeemed it with his own blood, and he will bring you out of the grave and set you on your feet in a land of plenty. He will bring you into his kingdom. And if you have life in his kingdom now, don't turn back again to the unfulfilling rebellion like Saul did. Listen to God. Obey him. Do not set yourself up as an enemy of God. And lastly, in our third chapter, we, we see that the kingdom is built through providence. 
David is faced with a choice of two betrayals. While the Philistines faced to pre- prepare to face Israel, David is faced with this interesting choice. Am I going to back Achish, who's been looking out for me, who's been helping me, or do I back Israel? So it seems, for the moment, uncertain. He goes along with Achish. They're heading up. They're getting ready for the battle. They're, they're going up here. You can see that Ziklag again. And you can see this is the Valley of Jezreel, right up there in the top corner near Megiddo. And, um, you know, David is set out on his way up to go to the battle with Achish. But then through God's providence, God gives him a way out. He doesn't need to make a decision. The kings, the kind of the other kings that are in, a, in, a, in with Achish, they say, look, we don't want to have anything to do with this guy, um, it's just, it's too risky. And Chisha says, look, he's my mate. He's, gonna, he's coming to help us out. He's on, my, he's on our side. They said, no, we're not so sure. Remember, the, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands? Well, those thousands and ten thousands were Philistines. Um, we don't really want him uh, at our back when we're in the thick of battle. So, by God's providence, David is sent home. That's why he loops around there and comes back again. Through God's providence, he doesn't need to make that call. To keep the peace, Achish sends David home. And God's grace in the circumstances allowed David to have his hands free of the blood of either group. God works through that providence. And it turns out that God's got another mission for, Saul, uh, for, for David in a couple of days, but that's a story for next week. So through God's providence there, he actually gets to go back and deal with something else. But it's a reminder to us that God builds his kingdom through providence. We are the benefits of his we are the beneficiaries of his providence at every moment. It's through providence that, uh, that, that Jesus was set up on that cross and crucified. It was through the acts of evil men acting on their own evil intentions who put Christ on the cross and yet God's providence worked it for our salvation. We are the beneficiaries of that today. And we like to thank God at every mealtime. That's why we do grace. We thank God at every mealtime that he has given us these gifts through his providence, not because we deserve them. God even works in our lives faith by providence. Now, some of us here might have had amazing experiences where we came to faith through some miraculous thing. But for the vast majority of us, it was a bit more ordinary, a process over time by which God worked in us and brought us to believe and understand the gospel. God's providence saved David, so that he could continue his work of kingdom building. And God's providence brought the anointed King Jesus to his throne. God's providence brought you here today so that you could hear the good news. So where have we been? We have been seeing that David is kingdom building in exile. He is he's continuing the work even though he's not a king yet. Just like Jesus, who came and started establishing a kingdom long before he came into his glory. We see that Saul was tearing his kingdom apart. He was in a, um, a spiral 
down to the grave. He was killing his kingdom. Despite the fact that he had known God and known his blessings, he was now just running headlong in the other direction. He was going to God's judgment and wrath. And we've seen that God builds his kingdom through providence, both then with David and now through Jesus Christ. Jesus is building a kingdom even now, and one day that kingdom will be fully ready, ready with final judgment. We're in the exile now, but the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming and now here, but not yet. Now, but not yet. But as that kingdom comes, it comes with an inheritance for his own people. Jesus says these words. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. But then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread by your providence. And deliver, um, forgive us our trespasses. And as we forgive those who trespass against us. And deliver us not into evil. Sorry, I'm getting myself mixed up. Keep us from temptation and, and Lord, we look forward to the coming of your kingdom. For yours is the, the, the kingdom, the power, the dominion, now and forever. Amen.